Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Well, top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. I am so excited for you guys today. As promised last week, I told you about this upcoming episode, and our guest is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, Ethan Cross. He's an award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's psychology department, where he founded the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Just think about that. He's an expert in helping people break the cycle of negative thought. And today we'll be diving into his book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Ethan, welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. We're delighted to have you. Delighted to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. No, it's great stuff. And you and I were talking uh, offline today. I've been interested in this content for over 30 years. Talked to you about Shad Helmstetter, a good friend of mine. But I just really feel like this is what Chad Helmstetter did on steroids. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. So before we get into the content, because people are teed up last week's episode, teed you up. So they're all waiting for who shot JR today, you know. (laughs) But before we get into it, I would love to hear a little bit of where you're from, what your journey was like. uh, How did you go from being a kid in Michigan all the way up to being in this line of work today? So what was your career path? You know, I I grew up in a a working class neighborhood of... um of actually of New York, of, of Brooklyn, where, where um, a bit of a melting pot, actually, of uh, people from lots of um, different cultures, including your own. Your accent is a very familiar one that's making me miss home right now. Irish, Italian, Jews, you know, every color, every nationality, all mixed together. Um, but you know, most relevant, uh, uh, I, my dad was a really interesting guy. He, um, not a college grad, uh, but he was someone who read voraciously and um, was really into Eastern philosophy and psychology. And he was, you know, bounced around from lots of different jobs over the course of his life. But he he read a lot and he talked to me about what he read. And one of the things he started talking to me about from the time I was three years old was the importance of introspection, of when bad things happen, turn your attention inward Try to make sense of the problem. Get to the root of it so you can move on, find a solution. And, you know, when I was three years old. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about, to be honest. But um, uh, but but as I grew older, uh, I really listened to him. And, you know, whenever things happen, I was, you know, should I ask this girl out or not? Or um, should I apply to this school or that? I would I'd introspect. And that skill really served me well. It was it was a, it was an asset that I was really thankful to my dad for giving to me. And then I got to college and I took my first class in psychology. And about halfway through the semester, we got to the topic of of introspection. And what I learned is on the one hand, there were lots of people who benefited from doing this just as I had, just as my dad told me I would. But there was an equal number of people who really struggled, particularly when they were experiencing strong negative emotions, sadness, anxiety, anger. They would do exactly what my dad told me to do, turn inward, try to figure out why you're feeling the way you are. But their attempts to do that would backfire. It would end up making the problem worse. They'd ruminate, they'd, they'd worry, they'd catastrophize, they would get stuck. Um, and, and, and that to me 
was just fantastically interesting. Why is it that we have this amazing really a superpower to think about our lives and problem solve? And, but, but this superpower was really being uh, a huge disadvantage for so many people. And so that, that led me to, to graduate school and it led me to start the Self-Control and Emotion Lab here at Michigan. And that's what I've been researching for the past 20 years. By the way, my dad, his family were immigrants to America. My dad was born in Brooklyn. Then he went back to Ireland. So nice. it seems like a lot of good things start in Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, some bad too, but we won't talk yeah, about that. right. You know, as you go through this process, I mean, I just think I'm really loving to roll up our sleeves and get into this because the introspection piece I feel has been so overdone. I actually have had a chance to speak at national meetings of the psychologists. And, you know, when I talked to them individually, it was a lot of times, men. it seemed like they got into the profession to sort out their own junk as much as anything. And the biggest advice oftentimes, and not throw everybody in the bus, but just like, see you next week. And it's the needle gets stuck. What ultimately led you, I'm curious, to write the book, Chatter? What brought you to the point? Man, I got to write this book. Yeah, it was actually an experience in the classroom here at Michigan. So I had been teaching a seminar to undergrads on the science of self-control. You could think about this as science's greatest hits when it comes to managing yourself, being wise in life. And super fun class to teach, really conversational. Um, And the way the class went was every week I would everyone would do the readings and I'd ask the students questions. We'd have a conversation and the assignment on the final class was we, we kind of switched roles. And so the students came to class with questions for me and you probably know this, Brian, but like after you give, after you teach a class, the same class a few times, you come to know what questions you're going to get after a while. Like, ah, you know, you just, the same questions tend to come up. But the last time I taught this class, this girl named Ariel asked me a question I had never gotten before, and it really stumped me. And the question was, why are we learning about this now? And what what she meant by that, I didn't understand initially, was she she elaborated, well, you know, we've been learning about all of these tools that we can use to, to perform better, to feel better, to be healthier. Why didn't someone teach us about this before we were seniors in, in college? like in high school or elementary school, when we could have used these things, we're done now. And um, and I didn't have a good answer to that question. And that really bothered me. It really bothered me that I couldn't answer that question. And so it led me to do two things. First was get involved in a project where we've taken what we know about the science of how to manage our emotions and our mind. And we've translated that into a curriculum for high school students that we're actually now evaluating. Um, but it also led me to in, to participate in a much bigger effort to to share what we know about how to control the mind and our emotions for people more generally. And that's what this book is about. Well, I got good news for you because the average age of my client in the coaching business is about twice the age of Ariel. And they start with me going, man, where were you when I first started? And so the great news is we're never done. The dynamic is you get a little older, you got more to reflect on, (laughs) but you got more to learn from. But you've also probably grooved the needle quite a bit in regards to this self-talk. There was a lot of times, I read a lot of books and some of them are very heady. Uh, You have a great style. You have the voice and the manner. I wish I'd have taken a class from you in college. You have a very soothing voice. You got a great way of explaining things. But you wrote about this letter you received in 2011 that sparked a whole bunch of research for you on our inner voice. And I just, 
I'm such a believer in that and what goes on inside our head, how it influences our actions, how it changes the chemical balance in our bodies, all this stuff. Can you share with the audience a little bit about this letter you received and how it sparked all this research? Yeah, so um, I guess about 10 years um, ago at this point, I I had appeared on the the evening news to to talk about a study that my colleagues and I had just published that got a lot of attention. It basically showed that when people use the language of pain to describe how they how they feel when they're rejected, so my feelings hurt, we basically used um brain scanning technology to show that when you experience rejection, it actually activates physical pain centers in the brain. And so I went on the news. It was really exciting. My mother was so happy. She finally told me it was okay that I hadn't become a real doctor, an MD. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you know, I've, I've done it. I Sounds like a New York mother. <laughs> That's right. I love her dearly. I love her dearly. Um, so it was great. You know, I, I had a, I had a 30 second uh, appearance on, on, on TV and life was good. And uh, fast forward about a week, I showed up at my office at the University of Michigan, and there was a letter hand addressed to me, which was very rare. You know, even back then, it was all about email. I never got letters. But I opened this up, and the moment I did and saw the contents, I started having a physiological stress reaction. I started sweating profusely. Um, you know, there were ugly drawings and, and racial slurs and all sorts of threatening um messages contained in in this letter and and it was the kind of letter i showed it to a few colleagues and everyone turned white when they saw it so i had to go to the police station and talk to the police officer who wasn't particularly reassuring when i when i explained the situation he said yeah it's probably nothing just just try to drive home a different way from work each day to be sure and the, the the punchline there is at the time where we lived i was about four blocks from my office so you know there, there weren't a whole lot of directions I could take home. And so for the next, the next couple of days, I mean, I truly, I was in my head, lost in thought, talking to my, you know, silently talking to myself, which we, we often do when we struggle with problems. We try to work through them. And, you know, my inner, inner monologue was all about what, what have I done? What, you know, I've got a beautiful baby. I had my first kid just a few months earlier and, and wife at home. I put them at risk. Can I get a new job? I mean, I was really spinning, totally stuck and really pacing my house with a baseball bat for several nights, really, truly concerned about what could happen. And um, fortunately, I, I shifted how I was talking to myself at one point, which really broke me out of that spell. I did something that at the time seemed really odd but that we've since gone on to do some science around. I did something called distant self-talk at one moment when I was having these wacky thoughts, uh, you know, like, can I get a bodyguard? I assure you, Brian, there are no bodyguard outfits that specialize in protecting academics, right? But, but this is what I'm thinking about. At one point I said to myself, Ethan, what are you doing? And, and, and what I did there was really, and then I went on to basically, it was like I was having a conversation with a friend, trying to coach a friend through the situation. You need to calm down. This is going to be okay. Go to sleep. And what I did is something called distant self-talk. I basically started coaching myself through the problem. Like I would give advice to someone else. And we now know that that's a useful tool for managing chatter, the, the thought loops that we often succumb to. Um, it's much easier for people to give advice to others than it is to take our own advice. 
And, um, and what we've learned is that language can be our friend. We can actually talk, talk, use the word, like, when do we use names? We use names when we think about other people, right? So if you use your own name to talk to yourself, it's almost like a psychological jujitsu technique. It switches how you relate to the self. It's getting you to relate to yourself like you're advising your best friend. And that was really helpful to me. And we've done lots of research showing that it's helpful to others too. So, so that's my, that's my stalker story. Yeah. And you know what? My mother used to say, God builds the back for the burden. You know, you, you get something like that. It shakes up the system. And every policeman in the world has the same reaction, by the way, for all of us who've been in that spot. Yeah. And then they tell you the reassuring words. We can't do anything until they do something. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I heard that one, yeah. too. So it sounds like you can, you can commiserate about this experience. So the dynamic is ultimately, you know, you go through this. And I think there's a point here that's very important. It is perfectly understandable that you went into that funk. It's perfectly understandable. There would be probably something wrong with you if you didn't have that. Oh, no, you're supposed to be this, uh, you know, specialist in the University of Michigan. No, you're not. You're supposed to read a letter that threatens your life in very terrible ways and just say, well, that is just unfortunate. That person must have a lot of issues. I think this is a big deal to have empathy for yourself. Like it's, of course, you would have a reaction like that. And it's okay. And if somebody today is plagued with negative self-talk, a lot of it is in reaction to things that have been said or done or witnessed. And then sometimes, unfortunately, we proceed to build upon it and build a huge second and third story or cement it in place. So I think the first thing is, that was a natural thing. I think this distant self-talk, what a magnificent, simple, understandable. Because as you know, people are great at insight for other people and terrible at insight for themselves. So having that conversation with yourself, calling yourself by name, and actually giving yourself a consultation, phenomenal experience. You mentioned it earlier, these attempts to go inside and reflect on our problems, they often backfire. Why is that? Why does it backfire when we do this to ourselves? So it, it, it typically backfires. Well, you know, what, actually, before I answer that question, let me back up one second. I want to make clear to everyone that the, you know, talking to ourselves, our inner voice, this is an amazing tool that under most circumstances helps us a lot. It helped. This is the basis of our ability to problem solve, to innovate, to create, right? Like, you know, before I think about a presentation I have to give, I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say in my head, right? I'm imagining what the obnoxious person in the audience is going to ask me. And then I, I imagine what I hear, what I'm going to say back to, to that person, which by the way, is usually something very aggressive, I would never say in real life, but in my head, I could do it and it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, so, so that's, we, we use this inner voice all the time and, it, and it's powerful. So when does it backfire? It tends to backfire when we experience intense, strong negative emotions, um, which are part and parcel of daily life, I think, for many of us. And, and what happens when it backfires is we zoom in so tightly on the problem. We get stuck. We fixate on it very narrowly. So I'm just thinking about that letter. I'm seeing the letter. I'm imagining what's going to happen if that person comes. And what happens when we zoom in that narrowly, we lose perspective. So we can't see the bigger picture, which is often so amazingly helpful for working through our problems. And so you know, I give you a concrete example that many listeners might relate to. Like right now, look, many of us, I think, are, are worrying and ruminating about the pandemic, about 
our own health, the health of our loved ones, the fact that we're dealing with our kids at home. There's lots of sources of stress right now. And a lot of us are so tunnel visioned into that stress. That's all we're thinking about and we can't get out of it. And so when that happens, one set of tools that can be really useful is shift your perspective, try to go broad. And there are lots of ways you could do that. Distance self-talk is one. Another tool I talk about in the book is something called um, temporal distancing. Fancy name, we could call that mental time travel. You think about rather than getting stuck in, oh my God, how awful is the situation right now? Think about how you're going to feel six months from now when you're maybe sitting on the beach with two or three pina coladas and and having a good time because you're vaccinated, right? Maybe it's not six months, maybe it's nine months, but but doing that, transporting yourself into the future, what that does is it makes it clear that as awful as what we're experiencing is right now, it's temporary, it's going to end. And that gives us hope and hope is really powerful for changing those internal conversations, making them more productive. It's funny you say that. I had the great privilege of interviewing a commander of the Navy SEALs, and they were in this firefight. And one of these brave soldiers who'd been on deployment after deployment and done heroic act after heroic act kind of snapped. And it just kind of was all getting the best of him. And they're not superhuman. They're regular human beings who have some very special qualities. And this one guy was kind of panicking, and the commander just kind of got him by the shoulders. And for a second, while bombs and bullets are firing, goes, I want you to think of yourself six months from now. You're back in San Diego. You're in the beach. And we're all hanging out. We're drinking a Corona. And you're telling your buddies how at a moment when you've had the crisis, what happened and what did you do? Imagine what you'd say. He went on to say that guy gathered himself and was able to use his mind to solve a problem, which ended up saving a bunch of guys' lives. So bombs and bullets flying. He did the temporal distancing, right? The mental time travel. Took him to a beach in San Diego drinking a beer, and all of a sudden he wasn't in combat in Iraq. He took him away from that, and the guy was able to use his mind to solve a problem which saves lives. If it can work under that duress, it can work anytime. Yeah, it's funny how, how when we travel in time, it often is to a beach with a delicious cocktail. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but you know, Brian, one of the things that was been so interesting in doing research on this the past 20 years and, and writing about this work is there are so many different tools that we can use that are like this. These are small shifts in how we think that recalibrate us as when we're struggling. And, and sometimes it's just a gentle nudge to think differently that can make a difference. And we often stumble on these tools without knowing it. Like, so, you know, d distant self-talk, um, people have been doing this for ages, but they don't know why they do it. And I think the value of the science is it shines a spotlight on these tools. So we can be really deliberate in, in how we use them when we're, when we're spiraling and experiencing chatter. So the book is fabulous because you've assembled some tried and true practices, things old and new, and aligned them all. I think this is kind of the elephant under the carpet in how much all of us deal with our own internal life, our own internal monologues, what we have to deal with. You know, I get the question all the time, Brian, why are you always so positive? Why are you always so up? And the answer is I'm not, but I do have a few tools to get me through the day, to keep me moving on and, and to keep achieving at a high level. So I'm delighted you put this book together because not only do you explain these in wonderful terms, but you've aligned so many of these how-tos and tips 
in very understandable ways that we can use. So it's fantastic stuff. Let me kind of dive in here for a second. You point out again this dynamic in your book about the power and peril of other people. What is this and what can we learn from the power and peril of other people? Yeah, I think this is a a really important point in the book. Um, You know, we said before that we can often give advice to others better than we can follow that advice ourselves. So other people are in a prime position to help us work through our chatter. Uh, And if you look at the research, what you find is, indeed, certain ways of talking to other people can be remarkably helpful in, in, in helping us through our struggles. But, but if you talk to the wrong people the wrong way, they could actually make our problems worse. And this point is often lost. If you look right now at the advice that many public health organizations like the CDC are giving to folks who are struggling with the pandemic, go find other people to talk to. It is not that simple. And, and here's why. Oftentimes when we go to other people, We think that just venting our emotions, unloading what we're feeling is the way to feel better. This is a very, very popular belief. What the research shows is that if I, if let's say you and I, well, I hope we're now buddies. And uh, let's say I call you up to talk to you about something that's really bothering me. I'm spinning over. If I just unload to you what I felt and you just keep, keep on egging me on by asking me more about what happened, that makes me feel really close and connected to you. I know you're there for me. You're empathizing with me. And that that's, that feels good in the moment. But what happens when I leave that conversation if that's all we do? I still have the problem. And if anything, the problem's even more activated in my head because we just kept talking about it. So I continue to ruminate. And so there's actually research which shows that if you just vent, you feel closer to the other person, but it actually keeps your problems alive. The best kinds of conversations do two things. First, you do share what you're feeling with the person you're talking to a little bit. The other person needs to learn about what you're going through, right? And a little bit of empathy is a good thing. But at a certain point in the conversation, they nudge you to do what, you know, you just described happened to that Navy SEAL. They nudge you to think a little bit differently about, all right, so, you know, if you come to me, Brian, I hear about the really bad guest you had on the show was driving you nuts. Brian, but you know, you have so many guests, so many interviews have gone so well for you. So can't you put it in perspective? Or or maybe I say, well, let me tell you about how I, I've dealt with that kind of situation. So you're doing two things. You're You're validating the other person's feelings, but helping them also reframe it. And um, that's not what a lot of people do when they go to other people for help. Well, the other dynamic, which what I thought when I was reading the book, is it also, because we all have these experiences, everyone can relate to what you're talking about. This is all in real life. So number one, you're taking the needle on that vinyl record and you're scratching it deep. So now it's, it's a problem. Now it's a power problem. But the other dynamic is you've just taken that relationship and cemented it around this negativity. And either A, this person, if they're really into that negativity, you got a problem friend. Or B, you've taken a good friend, and now when you get together, you feel the need to go back to that same dynamic. For example, I have one of my best friendships in my life was formed through another person. So I was friend of this person. They were friend of that person. We became friends. Well, this person, as sometimes happens in life, spirals out of control, became a complete train wreck. Well, for a a while, every time we got together, we felt the need to talk about this person who'd introduced us because that's how we knew each other. And finally, I go, time out. Would it be okay 
if when you and I get together, we don't talk about that at all. And we ended up forming a great friendship that's lasted 30 years because we no longer addressed that thing that brought us together. And even if it's you vent and somebody's empathic, if you go back to that well, now that relationship is becoming cemented around that negativity. And if they're a good pal, you've kind of ruined them or you will ruin them. And if they're not, it means they just love they just love the drama and they want more of the drama. But you still go away with your problem, like you say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that's very true. And, you know, so I, I, I talk to a lot of people about this and and one one reaction people have is, but it feels really good to vent. And, and yeah, it does feel good. And the research shows you feel, you feel connected to the other people. But what I encourage people to think about is there are lots of things we do that feel good in the moment right. that aren't good for us long term. Yeah, right. Lots of things, right. right? And I think it's important to keep that in mind. So, so what's the take home here? There, there are two. There's a lesson here about when you're struggling with chatter to be very deliberate about who you seek out support from. So I'm exceptionally deliberate about who I talk to about my problems, right? And by, by chatter and problems, what we're talking about like everyday problems that you get stuck on, not necessarily, you know, clinical ones. Um, there are many people that I love very much and who love me, I think. I don't talk to them about my chatter because I know they're just going to kind of light me up. Instead, there are like three people I go to for personal issues and four for, prof- you know, professional. I've got like a chatter advisory board that I can sell. <laughs> Right. Very and they're, good. they're really, really yep. helpful. Yep. And then the other, the other take home is there's a lesson here for all of us and how we can react to our friends and colleagues when they approach us for help. Right. Don't just get them to tell us over and over how bad they felt. Try to help them reframe when they're ready the problem so we can be better chatter advisors to others. One example, one of the things we do here at Buffini Company. Years ago, we acquired a company that does in-depth analysis of a people's natural gifts and abilities, and one is how they communicate. And so I'm a very synergistic person. Mm -hmm. So synergistic persons want to talk things out. What I had to learn is I can only talk out certain things with certain people. Absolutely. I think, like you say, there are certain things you can share with some people that you shouldn't share with others. And be aware of what it does to you, but also be aware of what it does to them and the relationship that you have. So I think that's phenomenal advice. You know, let me let me just build on that for a second more. Um, you know, everything I just talked about deals with when you del- when you specifically approach someone else for help. You ask for advice. Um, there are situations, though, and this this touches on what you just described about you being synergistic and liking to talk. Some people don't like to talk about their problems, and sometimes we see our friends and loved ones struggling, and they don't ask us for help, and there's something else you could do in those situations, which I talk about in the book, which is you try to help them invisibly. It's called invisible support. So here's, here's an example of that. So my daughter is, 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 is maybe struggling with her homework and I see it. Look, I'm a professional, right? I'm a professor. I can help with sixth, fifth grade math. Hey, sweetie, let, let me show you how to do that instantly. Did I ask you for help? Do you think I don't know how to do it? And then I feel like crap and the fighting begins and not good, right? I've essentially threatened her sense of self-worth and so forth. Not good. So in those situations, though, there are other things that we can do to help people. So let's say my wife is really stressed out at work. And I know she could use some help, but she doesn't ask me for it. 
I can help her indirectly, right? I can do things as trivial as, you know, pick up the dry cleaning or take care of dinner, do things to make it easier for her to work through the problems she's struggling with. Or if I know she's really struggling with a client at work, she's a nutritionist, you know, maybe I indirectly give her some advice about how to help. Like, hey, have you seen this interesting talk? It looks really relevant to a lot of the stuff we do, right? So don't shine a spotlight on, oh, I know you're struggling. Let me tell you what to do, but give her the information some other way. Research shows that that can be really helpful. Those invisible ways of helping can be can be useful for relationships. Well, my wife figured this out. I'm married 30 years, and my wife figured this out a long time ago with me, which is she'll buy a book on the subject matter that she's gone through. She's highlighted a bunch of things, and then she'll write a little note. This is my take on this. What's yours? That is exact. She is uh, an exceptional, invisible supporter. She's a genius. You're a lucky man. And because she's highlighted it, I know she's engaged in it. And she does it in a way like, hey, I just want your thoughts on this. I'm well trained at this stage where I know, okay, I must be really screwing up here. But I will say this. It makes for great conversation. (laughs) And, you know, it's one on one together makes 11. And so, you know, there's nothing as powerful as let's do this together. Even with this, like we have a team of coaches in the building next door. They transform people's businesses and lives. Well, one of the dynamics we often get into in coaching is a coach will say to someone when they're kind of stuck, Let me ask you, if I had this problem, what advice would you give me? And it's amazing. One, two, three, four. They'll write it down. They'll feed it back to them. And then the end of the coaching session be like, so I I should just do that then, huh? We all need it. We're all stuck. And I just think, I think another piece here is it's not that there's something wrong with you. Like some people think when they have the voices in their head, like when that's often referred to in old movies. Yeah. As you you got some mental problems. Yeah, absolutely not. Couldn't it, be further yeah, from the right. truth. We all have a voice in our head. And if you are questioning that, here's my here's a little exercise we could do right now. Let's say my phone number was 2090501. I want you to repeat that number in your head silently. Just say the digits. If you've just done that, you've exercised the voice in your head. Right? You've used what the voice in our head means. Let's strip away all the Hollywood connotations about, you know, delusions. And I know exactly what you're This is our ability to silently use language, right? Silent inner speech. And it's a basic feature of the human mind. So if that morphs into chatter at times, you know, you're in very good company. Because, you know, for the book, I interviewed everyone from elite athletes to CEOs to everyday, you know, Joe Schmo's walking down the street. And I mean, Joe Schmo with enormous affection. I consider myself one of them. And what was striking to me was just how common chatter, rumination, worry actually is. We all experience it at times. So it's not something to be, you know, ashamed of uh, at all. My mom used to say it this way, and all my great lines come from my mother. She used to say, Everything God made for good, we know how to screw up. You know, <laughs> everything in life that's made for good, we know how to screw it up. And so I do think this, maybe we can switch here a little bit because I was fascinated by this Nadal principle. Yeah. And I just think it's crucial, this whole dynamic of our perceptions of control play in our lives. I just think that was such a cool deal. You just mentioned the sports piece. I just love to go there because I thought it was very rich. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So, 
So the, let's just start with the good news, right? We, we've we've already established that we all experience, we can all experience chatter times. The good news is we have evolved to have a toolbox of skills that we can use to rein the chatter in. Some of those tools are things we can do on our own. We talked a little bit about that, distance self-talk, temporal distancing. Then there are tools that are in our relationships with other people. We just talked a little bit about that too. Then, and I think this is a mind blower, there are tools in our physical environments, ways of navigating our spaces that can change the way we talk to ourselves for the better. And so Rafael Nadal um, is a great example of this. So in an interview, he tells he tells a, report, a journalist that the hardest thing he struggles to do on the tennis court is battle the voices inside his head. To me, that's amazing. This is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. He's facing the other great tennis players. The hardest thing for him is not returning a backhand or maintaining his endurance during a match. It's battling the conversations inside his head. That little voice that's saying, you're going to screw up. What if you don't do this? And so forth and so on. So what does he do to manage this? He engages in, in, in these rituals where he orders his behavior in very precise ways. If you ever watch Nadal play, you'll see this. Right before before every it's it's comical. Drives my wife nuts. By the way, yes, as many people touches his hair, then pulls his underwear. I mean, it's a science. It's it's a science. He before every return, as you're describing, he he tucks his hair behind his ear. He pulls his underwear out of his butt. He scratches <laughs> himself. He bounces, and it's very ordered. And and what he says yeah. when he's asked, "Why do you do this?" I order my surroundings to provide me with the order that I seek in my head. And, and it's actually a very powerful observation. And what we know, and this is based on lots of science, is that when we're experiencing chatter, when our, when our thoughts are running wild, right, when we're getting stuck, we don't, our thought, they're not ordered. We don't have control. And what we've learned is that people can compensate for that experience by establishing order and control in another domain around them. So this is why many perfectly healthy, well-functioning individuals, when they're stressed out, they do things like organize their spaces. I, you know, Brian, if you saw the rest of my office right now, I'm not, in a, I'm not particularly stressed right now. I'm pretty happy. If you saw my office, it's a disaster. Okay. I've got books all over the place and papers and the mad scientist doing his thing. When I was writing my book, during moments when I was really stressed out, I did something very unusual for me. I'd go to the kitchen and I'd wash all of the dishes. I'd neatly put them away. I'd scrub down the island. And that was a natural way that I was trying to manage chatter by organizing my environment. It got to the point where I began to worry that my wife wanted me to continue experiencing chatter. <laughs> so, but, but this is, this is, a, this is to me so fascinating, right? There are things we can do in the world around us that influence the things happening between our ears. Well, my wife is going to listen to this episode and she is going to die laughing because <laughs> she can predict when I'm going to write a best-selling book or a brand new training program or when something's happening. And again, this is how it works. And this is why I like Nadal because I know I have that same kind of OCD where I'll go through and I'll organize. You know, you know those drawers in your house where yes. everything gets dumped? <laughs> those get done. Everything. My office gets put away. I have to have this environment that is everything's ordered so that my mind can flow in creativity. That's exactly the phenomenon. 
And so when I'm really in a creative mode prior to it, like if you come to my office, it is like OCD heaven because I have to create a lot of content. And before I'll create content, I'll order everything. And that allows me to flow. So I've been interested in this content for 30 years. I just feel like this is the 2021 version. And it's very, very sound. It embraces the past, but it's also very forward looking. I think one of the most powerful things in the world is go, oh, I'm not the only one. And who actually sits down and talks about their inner secret thought life? Most of us, because we have all kinds of stuff, good and bad in there, it's something no one really talks about. And so I was describing this to someone the other day. I said, Ethan takes our inner voice and encourages you how to make it an asset instead of a liability. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. It is a tool that can be harnessed and science can show us how to do it. And and that's what's so exciting. Give us a few more of these tools that the listeners can implement just as we finish up here, because we're we talk about mindsets the motivation, and then methodologies of success. So you've talked about the distant self-talk. We've talked about the mental time travel. What other one or two other tips you could give that really help with the chatter? Let's talk about some more environmental tools because I think they're not obvious. And, and I should say, you know, in the book, I talk about like 26 different tools. And Yes, and yes. One, we don't need them all. We don't need them all. And one thing I want to tell readers in case I – not readers, listeners. The readers will know if they read. One thing that's really important is – I don't think of any of these individual tools as magic pills on their own, right? I think that the secret to managing our self-talk well is using combinations of tools. And so I think of our tools, we've got a toolbox of skills and different combinations work for different people in different situations. And so I think there's a real challenge for, for listeners to figure out what is the cocktail not the alcoholic one, but the strategy cocktail that really works for you. So, um, so what other str- strategies can fit in? Um, let's talk about awe, the emotion of awe. Uh, awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. So I, I felt it when I watched the Mars rover land. Brian, I just, I just got, finally got over experiencing awe at how we figured out to fly planes, right? Like, for a long time, I had trouble understanding how we go up in a tin can and land safely. Now, I've got to try to figure out how we manage to take an SUV, launch it out of Earth, and land it safely on Mars. Like, it fills me with that amount. 300 million miles. Unbelievable. So, what do we know? Research shows that when we experience awe, it's a really powerful perspective shift, powerful perspective broadener, because... When we're contemplating something vast and indescribable, our own concerns, and we feel a whole lot smaller by comparison. Like, here I am worried about who's going to get on, you know, the exercise bike first, my wife or I. And on the other hand, I'm thinking about interplanetary travel. Like, our own concerns feel smaller. And that helps with chatter. And so, that's another take home, right? Like, if you're struggling... Try to try to experience awe, like go for a walk in the park and look at something marvelous from nature. Watch a video of your kids doing something momentous, like walk their first steps. Look at a great piece of art. Another way of using the environment to help us. Well, Ethan, it's fantastic stuff. And I'm just so delighted you wrote the book. I'm delighted you wrote the book for me. It's been very confirming of things that I've been doing because I've been a student of this for 30 years. And it's also been thought-provoking. And then it's also given me a few new techniques to work on. And so 
We covered three wonderful tools today. There's 26 in the book. It's fantastic. Congratulations to you. I think this is super helpful for people. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to reach out to you and have you on the show. I just think it's great stuff. I want to ask you the five questions we ask every guest that all of our audiences come to know. And just gives us a little different flavor on who Ethan Cross is. And it adds more value to even to the content. So first one, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten? This too shall pass. Ah, beautiful. Who gave you that? I think that might have been my mom. Yeah, well, not only was my mom, it was my wife. So I got it from both. So there you go. Ah. And in fact, it's funny, but the highest rated episode of our entire show we've ever done was an episode at the height of the pandemic entitled This Too Shall Pass. So that's a phrase that resonates with people. Excellent. Okay, what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I, I wish I could be punctual for everything. Um, I'm really good when it comes to business, but not personal. Okay, great. There it is. What book has been most instrumental in your life? The easy one. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. And his son, by the way, is still carries on the work down in Arizona. Fantastic stuff and definitely a, a life-changing book for me, too. What movie do you watch over and over again? You're flicking through the channels. It comes on again. You always kind of stop and check it out, even if it's a bit of it. What's the one movie you've watched many times? The Matrix. That's great. I've gotten that a few times, actually. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. Last one. What is something that's still on your bucket list? Really making a difference. Uh, helping people on a grand scale. Uh, you know, I, I hope the book will do that, but it just came out, so I don't know. So that's still a item. Yeah, it will. And the content travels. And sometimes it travels in ways you can't imagine. And it'll come back around. And when you put it out there, the good stuff has a very interesting way of traveling. So my encouragement to you, I've been at this game a long time. Hold your hands open. You may be very surprised. My good friend John Gordon wrote a book called The Energy Bus. And it's a wonderful book. And it's all about positive energy and so on and so forth in companies and organizations. That book went nowhere. And then after a couple of years, next thing you know, it got picked up in Korea. And it became this huge bestseller in Korea, came back around, and he built an entire business. He's written 10 bestselling books since then. He built a training company around it. So be prepared. It's, and I can give you many examples of this. Be prepared to keep your hands open. You'll never know where this will find its way. This is the kind of book that's going to find its way into influential people's hands. And it's going to come back around in very many different ways. So I will tell you something that's on my bucket list is I bought tickets for 2020 because I thought it might be the last time to see Rafael Nadal play Roger Federer, and I've never seen them play. And I had eight center court tickets for two days at Wimbledon, and it got canceled. So I'm hoping I still get to do that, and I can watch the Nadal principle in action right there. Well, send me a little video clip if you do go. I would love to see it live, and I hope you get to see it. And Brian, let me just say, it was a fantastic interview, really a, a true joy to chat with you. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's great work. Uh, you have a great style and manner. This is going to help a lot of people, and it's helped me today. And I told folks last week about how to get out of a funk, and I promised them this book would be one of the ways to do that. So thanks for being with us. A person who's helped me with the voice inside my head my whole life is my mother, Therese Buffini. She's 90 years of age. From the day I was born, she told me, you can do it, Briny. You can do it. And I believed her. A little Irish immigrant who came to America, got in a motorcycle accident, was dead broke, always had this inner chatter that said, you can do it, Briny. 
So as we finish up here today, I will finish this episode the way I have the last 270 episodes with a little Irish blessing by my mother, Therese. So take it away, ma'am. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 